I'm Alexander Hefner, your host on The Open Mind. You can follow us at Open Mind TV and support our series on Patreon at patreon.com slash The Open Mind. I'm honored to welcome today's guest, who is a medical doctor and hero, heroine, humanitarian. She is assistant professor at Columbia University, Dr. Sion Faru. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. Doctor, one of the things that has come to the attention of the American people is the hesitancy of some communities to enroll in vaccination programs. Uh, Based on what has transpired to date, and now we're in February of a rollout that began in late 2020, um, what is your sense of the vaccine hesitancy and where it is most dominant? So I think historically, as we know, um, African-Americans and Hispanics, uh, most of, you know, medical literature and most of the experiments have um, excluded them or also have um, discriminated against them. And, you know, recently we've seen people quote uh, what had happened in Tuskegee, what had happened with the lead study in Baltimore, and all of those things kind of surfacing and the distrust in these communities um, about the medical um, development of the vaccines and also how they've been discriminated against. So as we've seen it now, and we'll probably continue to see it, the vaccine hesitancy, especially in these communities, are high. And there's a lot of mistrust, especially with the prior political administration, how Things have been politicized and really politics have been taken um, most of the leading roles instead of the scientific evidence or the scientists leading many of the evidence when it came to either the lockdown measures or um, uh, actually too many of the scientific interventions have been politicized. So uh, because of those things, um, the vaccine development had been questioned by so many, especially African-Americans. And the other thing also, the hesitancy comes uh, by mainly due to the lack of um, transparent data that many African-Americans were not enrolled in the study. Um, but what we've seen from Pfizer and Moderna, we've seen that 30% of the participants were um people that are from the US minority group. And um the lot and also the other additional um hesitancy comes that people feel like this vaccine was developed um very quickly and in short time span. So all these things are making uh you know certain population question um uh, about the validity of the vaccine. And that's why we're seeing also the disparities in the vaccine rollout, rollout in addition to um, some of the way how it's been implemented in different states as well. That's helpful, doctor. You're explaining the nature of the hesitancy, but you yourself are not hesitant or not an advocate of the hesitancy. Um, you disagree, correct me if I'm wrong, with the premise that people should be hesitant. So it's, um, I think everybody should understand what they're put into their body and they should know, um, they have the right to know, um, about the science and the evidence. But 
I don't think I disagree with people following conspiracy theorists to validate their point. Um, you know, as a physician, I do trust science. Uh, in addition to that, also, I did take the vaccine while pregnant, and those decisions were questioned by so many. Even I was attacked on social media for poisoning my unborn child. Uh, but I looked at the evidence. I looked at the risks and the benefits of the vaccine in addition to my exposure. And based on those things, I made that decision. So I think I encourage everyone to um, make an informed decision by listening to the right people and the, and the scientists and the community leaders, but not so much from conspiracy theorists that have an invalid data um, and really driven by fear um, instead of the facts. What would be most effective in reaching communities to dissuade people of their hesitancy through the information that we have available or asking Pfizer, Moderna, J&J ultimately to produce more transparent information? What is the key to getting more people on board with being vaccinated? So I think we also have to understand um, the vaccine hesitancy, while that exists. Recently, I can only speak to what I'm seeing here in New York City, but the vaccine rollout has not been equitable, right? What we've seen in the past, um, the recent data that just came out of the Department of Health, how many of the rich communities, predominantly white communities, have had more coverage of the vaccine than the communities that are uh, that have more people of color and vulnerable population. So um, I think also with how we're communicating with the population about the, the availability of the vaccine also adds the hesitancy. Um, so first, I think for the education part, um, we should have community leaders um, People that are very respectful, that are respectful in their in their community through the church or through different community outreach programs, we should empower them. Um, necessarily, people are not going to listen to physicians or to the government. People coming in suits on TV to tell them what to do. They rather hear it from their family members, cousins, people that they look up to. Um, and we've seen that. We've seen different community leaders going on TV, getting the vaccination to, um, to you know, sh- so people can actually have trust in the vaccine. So uh, there, there's that community outreach part, but also we should make it available for them. Um, what we've seen now, especially in New York, people are expected to go into this sophisticated online registration system Sometimes it fails because it's um, usually, you know, many people are trying to go on the site and the, the site fails, the website fails. But at the same time, people who are not, who don't have a good health literacy um, or they just like do the old school way of calling and making an appointment. But because we've made, we've made it so complicated, the process, uh, people are less likely to get vaccinated while, you know, trying to take care of family, go with their essential work, all of that just adds more challenge to uh, reach these communities. 
you describe the logistical and socioeconomic barriers that animate a hesitancy that is not purely on the basis of science. It's on the basis of economics. It's on the basis of practical considerations. So we are at this juncture of the vaccination program where it is supposed to be deployed to pharmacies and local institutions that would be a more convenient path for the people you describe. But from what you're saying, it sounds like it's still not happening that way, at least not yet. Yeah, absolutely. You know, um, recently there were places that um, had to change their outreach programs because um, the way they were doing it traditionally uh, it benefited the people that um, had access to healthcare. People were able to get appointments to their primary care doctors, but we know so many people in New York who do not have access to a primary care doctor to begin with. Uh, people having a phone or a computer with an internet connection that will allow them to register that also requires them to be on the computer every day um, at odd hours of the night to get the appointments. Um, unfortunately, you know, those things are impossible when people have to go. And those are also people doing most of the essential work who do not have the leisure of working from home. Um, and also they can't be in front of a computer waiting for an appointment to open up. So there's so many barriers with um, creating the access to these vaccinations. And um, also, language also has been a barrier at some of the sites we've noted in New York until it was out on media and they were criticized. There were people that had vaccination sites and predominantly Hispanic community, but only English-speaking um, staff um, during the vaccine administration. So I think we have to think about all about all about these barriers. And I understand that this is the first time in many decades um that the U.S. had to do this large campaign of vaccine administration since measles, so uh, there are a lot of there's a you know there's a learning curve that comes with all the challenge. But these are also things that are very rudimentary that people that policymakers have to think about when implementing such a large scale vaccination rollout. What would be your prescription for dealing with the problem? Both aspects of the problem the socioeconomic barrier, and then to the extent that there's still a scientific disconnect, an information barrier? I think we have so many um, home health aid workers in New York City who know the, who understand and know the communities very well. And we really have to think a bit different. We have to think about taking the vaccinations to these people's homes instead of having them come to a facility that requires them standing in lines forever or standing in line forever or also um, waiting on the phone forever to make an appointment. That just adds another barrier. So we have to be more creative in addition to what you stated about making it available in pharmacies, um, some grocery stores but also the people that are not able to come and get the vaccinations on site to take it to them at home through um, 
different outlets, whether it's Home House Aid, community outreach programs. And it's not a sophisticated process. Giving a vaccination is a very simple process that many home uh, home health aides and healthcare wor- workers are able to do. It just requires an injection. People are trained to do so by, for example, because insulin injections and other medication injections. So it doesn't take a lot. It just takes a lot of coordination from the city and the state side. How about that question of information versus mis or disinformation? What could these pharmaceutical companies, the state and city health administration, nationally, President Biden and Department of Health and Human Services, what can what could be done to challenge the hesitancy that's that's not being done? And and really what do you hope that some of these vaccine makers might be more forthcoming with in terms of data that would help calm people uh, or clear up any misconceptions they may have. So it goes back to what I said earlier. I think it's important to have this public figures, um, well-respected figures in the communities. And also, in addition to that, I would also say um, people that are... um, uh, in the entertainment business that are widely heard, that are widely heard and their, um, their outreach and their, especially through social media and through, um, TV and radio outlets who have many listeners that, um, and they potentially can influence decisions of an individual. And we just have to be creative a bit more than what we're doing right now, besides just being on TV. It does not, at this point, it's beyond what the president or the governor or the mayors can do, but it's really about what our community leaders can do. And most of it requires reaching out to these community leaders, showing them receiving the vaccination. We've seen Al Sharpton get his vaccination on TV but we need more local community leaders to do that, especially in uh, places of worship and schools and, um, and, and so on. So we just have to invest in that. And in addition to all of that, um, I think it requires also, you know, there are so many healthcare workers um, that have, um, you know, family members, really the distribution of information through the word of mouth could be more powerful than what comes out on TV from the White House or from the governor. So it also fails on, also the responsibility also comes on to healthcare professionals like me and so many others who um, have the duty of teaching their uh, family, immediate family or extended family. And this is a discussion I have with so many members of my own family, and also with other healthcare workers. As a scientist, when it comes to the data, what do you hope? I know you're already vaccinated, and you made the decision to vaccinate with the information we have currently, or even before today. But what information as a scientist do you still want from these vaccination makers that is not yet available? Um, so a few things I would say about with the new variants that we are seeing from other parts of the world, how this um, vaccinations have already been developed and received the emergency use authorizations, 
how they um, uh, to see uh, how well how effective and protective they are against these new variants that are coming out from different parts of the world, and also to have a transparent data about that. Um, in addition to um, looking at other vulnerable populations that have not been studied, well studied, and then um, in the initial phase, um, hopefully to see how uh, once this population, such as pregnant people, people under the age of 18, once um, this uh, vaccine has been expanded to include this group, I would like to see more of the data about how protective it is. And another thing I would also say is, um, as also a humanitarian and a global health emergency physician, I also really do hope that the vaccines would become available to many that are, um, you know, poor and unable to pay for these vaccinations across the world because, Unfortunately, we've seen a lot of vaccine nationalism um, happening in many of the rich countries. But as we know, that will also in the long in the long term will cost many of the developed nations because we'll see many variants coming up in different parts of the world. So if we can't have this equitable distribution of vaccines all over the world, um, we won't be out of this pandemic because one country is fully vaccinated. Um, and I know that some vaccine companies have made it affordable through signing um, with what we call the COVAX accelerator program with WHO. But some places have, you know, um, some of the vaccine producers have not been able to do that. And hopefully, um, you know, now more than ever that we all learn at this point how interconnected we are and how we really just can't um uh, completely uh, be safe and protected until everyone in the world is safe and protected. There's been a resurgence, but do you anticipate that our hospital systems are equipped enough to prevent anything like what we experienced in the spring of 2020? I think most places have learned from their mistakes and at least I can speak for my hospital and many around New York, especially with, since we were the we were one of the early places to get affected, and we've we learned through the process that we can't really um, go through it again. So many places have prepared equipments and supplies worth for three months. Um, and also now the holiday season and the and the resurgence from the holiday seasons are, you know, almost over and declining. We're very optimistic, but I think many of us should not let our guards down. Um, and also, I would also say, I think many healthcare providers have learned also from the mistakes. And also, we now have more evidence and scientific literature on what works and what doesn't work, which is, was very different back from in the spring of 2020. So I'm optimistic in a way that we will be able to, you know, overcome any of the challenges that come ahead of us, but also really depends on the prevention and how the community um, 
will respond to many of the advices that come from healthcare providers. Dr. Sian Faru, thank you so much for your insight today. Thank you.